Liz, if you had a terror squad, mm. this is a good one. If okay. you had, if you had a terror, let's say you have a fascist terror group mm. in 1973 in Italy. What are you calling it? I don't know what Lady Joker is in in Italian, but something something like that. La feminine comedian. <laughs> yeah, or maybe there's like a Pagliacci like. <laughs> <laughs> Is there like a way to make black like, Pagliacci? Yeah, <laughs> dark like, Pagliacci. Yeah, that's yeah. my new uh, Tumblr aesthetic. A dark dark Pagliacci. Pagliacci. I was like crazy. Like How dark, we... dark clown. But it's not like it's not. Um, um, dark clown's been done, Liz. No, no, no. But no, no, no. Uh-huh. I'm talking more of like the Italian or artistic, a kind of you know. So like a Goya Commedia clown. Dell'arte, yeah. Dark Commedia dell'arte. I don't know That's what the del, aesthetic. I don't know what del arte means, but I know a dark clown when I assume. So, Liz, if you were the 1970s in Rome, you and a bunch of guys in Slipknot uniforms would be going around blowing up school children. Welcome. Wait, that's too. That's too Coindexter. Please, welcome to my toy shop. It's so nice of you to come in here on Christmas Eve. Are you going to say hello to me? No. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Nazi Pinocchio, <laughs> and I love the Jews. Oh my God. Oh, oh Nazi I, Pinocchio. That is the true fascist Nazi alliance. May right I there. inquire to your racial ancestry, madame? Mm, no, Fran Franchak, what kind of name is what kind of name is that? No comment. Ooh, well, oh, well Nazi I, Pinocchio. <laughs> well, Nazi Pinocchio loves the poles like you. Hello, All my right, name is okay. Brace. Nazi Pinocchio. I put Nazi Pinocchio back in the that was a, That's a tough character. Yeah, I don't like him. Nazi he's, Pinocchio. I'm running he's out of, scary. I ran out of runway there. Um, yeah. I'm well, Liz. He, uh, my name is, oh, again, Brace. I don't know why <laughs> I've mentioned it. What if I did that from now? I just started, just did it bookended every time you introduce yourself. With no, also you do that, though. I just only did that once. That's nope. why it's notable that mm. we're joined by producer Young Chomsky, and I am Brace. The podcast is called... <laughs> True Anon, my name is Brace. Hello. And that's Brace. Yeah. We're back. We're back. More NATO. Mm-hmm. More Nazi Pinocchio. Not- <laughs> well, in more ways than one. We um, we spent the first episode, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to that, go back. Yeah, you need to listen to that to get this you one gotta anyways. You got to rewind. Mm-hmm. Stop yeah. listening. <laughs> Don't make the sound. No, I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah, go back, listen to that, because you need the historical context here. We talk about yeah. in the first episode the um, you know situation in Western Europe after the war and the American um, exportation, implantation, mm-hmm. implementation, all those things of the kind of mass Fordist production model, basically reconfiguring European class structure post-World mm-hmm. War II. Now, here's the fun secret. If you are a uh, Ooh, listener, what? what? Well, I was wanting to hear what the fun secret is. Oh, 
if you're a listener of Trudon, you would know this, or you know, a reader of mm, let's say Marxist material, that uh-huh. that kind of reorganization and capitalist restructuring and capitalist class structuring in general requires mass violence in order to um you know fulfill its requirements and that's what we're here to talk about today because NATO was is more than just a defensive alliance as people think it is really a kind of um i i mean looking at what the the kind of terror that that NATO backed and aligned and you know uh, architected terrorist groups unleashed in West, Western and Central Europe in the 20th century. Uh, I mean, I don't know what else to say other than it's like the fucking like m- mafia wing of American yeah. capitalism. And there's so many to choose from <laughs> of the well, mafia wings. My thing with this, I'm like, listen, if you teach some guys to blow some shit up, they're going to blow some shit up. And uh, that worked out perfectly for NATO. Uh, I, I think what we're what we're getting into today is a uh, is sort of a case study about really NATO's only operation prior to nine eleven. Um, and uh, and I think I think I want to really hammer home here, as I've seen a lot of people say that NATO is a defensive organization. Obviously, um, you know the the history of NATO in the twenty first century very much disproves that. But I would say that the history of NATO in the 20th century, uh, unless you were using the most liberal-ass fucking definition of defensive, meaning uh, kill anybody who lives in your home country that it disagrees with you, uh, the NATO has never been a defensive organization. And in fact, NATO sucks dick and balls. Yeah. So welcome to part two. Let's go. So nice of both of you to join me here at my Italian villa. Oh, don't worry. You can leave the door open. The Pope will be here soon. Not the one that we're going to shoot. A different. This is before that. That's the, the Pope that's in charge of the checkbook. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, we're having cool, the cool Pope join us. Uh, he smokes weed. Um, it is a pleasure to see you both here today. I have long known you since our time together in the fascist party of the 1930s. And now here it is the late 1960s and the Vietnam War is in full swing and student protesters are on the street. So it's nice of you guys to join me here so that we can plan an operation where we kill 300 of them with a, a uh, some kind of time bomb. Uh, we have, of course, Liz, the Black Countess, and joining us, um, well, I'm trying to think of what else is like scary and fascist sounding. Uh, Crazy Ben Howard, <laughs> an independent researcher and former frogman. And of course, me, uh, Mr. Uh, Spies a Lot, which is an Italian surname. Uh, and we're here to talk about NATO Part 2, Gladio. Welcome, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. Probably my most strained intro to date. <laughs> um, I know, and given the subject matter, I thought you would have had a kind of, I don't know, 
Something. something oh, else I'm little Pinocchio. <laughs> I, oh, I was I was just a little doll made Wait, by my master. Can you do a Belgian accent? Please? No. They. Oh, sorry. Can I do an accent of something that doesn't exist? What is a Belgian? <laughs> what is a Belgian, Liz? What is a Belgian? These are a Belgian all good is questions. a Dutchman, a Dutchman, or a, a Frank. A yeah. Dutchman or a Frank or a German. There is no Belgium is just Switzerland, except I ain't putting any of my fucking money there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> It does. It's it's Belgium. Belgium should be Israel. Not elaborate <laughs> on that any further. Um, we have we have you back on the show here, Ben, and we are talking about a subject that we've actually touched on with you before in one of our nine eleven episodes. Um, but you know, in our previous episode on NATO, which if you have not listened to, then you should go listen to that now because that will give you the entirety of the context for this. Uh, we talked about how there hasn't really been any operations, militarily speaking, by this defensive organization uh, during the entirety of the Cold War, ostensibly its entire purpose, right? Um, but that's actually not the case. And NATO, in fact, conducted a decades-long spree of murder and mayhem throughout Europe for very specific political and military goals. Uh, and that is sort of colloquially known as Operation Gladio. Uh, some of you that may ring a bell or two. Um, and uh, if for those of you who it doesn't, we're going to ring every single one of your bells tonight. <laughs> yeah, Gladio, I think is the, I, I think you're right to call it the first uh, NATO operation. It, it really amounted to a, a psychological and terror war uh, against the European population, especially in, in countries that, um, were viewed as being further to the left, like Italy. Um, it it was a it was a violent campaign of of uh, you'd have to call it you know paramilitary terrorism mm-hmm. uh, directed by these NATO institutions uh, and and using the various states uh, intelligence apparatuses. And yeah, I think it uh, you know the idea that NATO was a is a defensive military alliance to protect against Soviet aggression. Uh, it's it's really shown to not be true by the fact that the only uh, the only real military operation that that they actually you know operationalized during the entire Cold War period was was this, which was a, a campaign pretty much directed against uh, civilians and and uh, consequently the the political structures in Europe, specifically with an eye towards um, making the the rise of the left uh, impossible in countries mm-hmm. like Italy in particular. Now we talked about this a little on our last episode. In fact, we talked about this extensively on our last episode. Uh, but left-wing parties were huge in uh, much of Western Europe following the Second World War. If you look at uh, their electoral performances, which is not always the greatest um, marker of, of of actual support among the population, but almost all of them did their best in the immediate years following the mm-hmm. Second World War. Uh, and in the case of Italy, uh, there has been uh, – I'm sure that – you know what? I, I'll never assume anything anymore. For those of you who don't know, during the Second World War, there was a large uh, number of Italians who were like, yeah, this thing sucks and we don't want to uh, be fascist. In fact, we're going to fight them. And they became partisans, which means they fought against their own government uh, you know, in clandestine ways, but also you know, in the mountains. Um, following the war, you know, they, they, these, these movements tend to pick up steam, especially as the people they're fighting against uh, are on the back foot. And following the war, there was a huge um, 
basically public outpouring of support for the Communist Party because they had been essentially the staunchest enemies of of the fascist regime uh, throughout the Second World War. And this was repeated uh, throughout much of, well, I guess Italy is in Southern Europe, but throughout much of Western Europe and actually throughout much of Europe as a whole. Um, And uh, that was not looked upon kindly by the American occupiers of Italy uh, following the Second World War. Uh, in fact, it was it was sort of viewed as one of the most um, uh, sort of the biggest problems that they had on their hands in terms of uh, domestic um, situations in other countries. Yeah, and if you think about the goal uh, that we discussed in the previous episode of uh, orienting the European economy towards the Atlantic, towards the United States, towards the UK, uh, you know that was the that was the intention of the United States. You know the communists, beyond having uh, the goal of you know turning Europe into a workers' paradise, on the you know more much more concretely uh, in the in the immediate you know for for instance Tagliati, who was the head of the Italian Communist Party, mm-hmm. um, you know he worked with the Soviet Union and Fiat to finance a, a, the opening of a, a an auto plant in in the Soviet Union, right? So this idea that um, that the Western European Communist parties wanted to uh, work with other elements, including capitalist elements, you know, national national bourgeois elements within the European, uh, the various European states, to orient those countries towards uh, towards the Soviet Union, uh, even if it didn't mean you know actually having a Marxist-Leninist form of government. Yeah, I think that one thing that's important to point out is that uh, in this period and in the period prior to this, during the second world war is to, um, the common turn, which was the international organization that governed communist parties. Um, they actually took an ex- sort of explicitly anti-revolutionary stance, uh, where they were saying, do not overthrow your governments, form these national coalitions, um, and essentially either take power via parliamentary means or sort of bide your time. And the, the left-wing parties throughout Europe, well, except for some of them, but the left-wing parties in Western and Southern Europe actually, you know, obeyed these diktats, right? Like the French communists did not have a revolution after the Second World War, even though it probably would have been the best time for them to have done that. Uh, well, I don't know, American military presence aside. Um, but uh, so that they, they were these these parties were not revolutionary parties at this point. I think we should we should make that pretty clear. So there was no real threat of them um, storming parliament and, and shooting everyone in it and, and putting it in a worker state or whatever. Um, but uh, that did not dissuade the powers that be uh, in American and, and America and Britain and, and throughout the Christian Democratic parties in these countries uh, from viewing them as the primary number one threat to their countries following the war. Yeah, there was even explicit language in some of the early drafts of the North Atlantic Treaty about uh, you know the the threat of uh, I can't remember what they said. The, uh, yeah, political change favorable to an aggressor. That is to say, the yes. USSR. The idea that NATO would be directed not only against the USSR itself, but against political change that would be favorable to the USSR or seen as favorable to the USSR to these to these right wingers. Yeah, that that was a really um, sort of contentious part of the NATO drafting. In fact, I think it was Britain that put the kibosh on putting that in there. A little uh, too on the nose. Exactly. They still, to be clear, dear listeners, they still did that. Like that right. was still viewed as one of the primary goals of of any country within NATO and NATO as a whole was to quash any sort of um, political environment favorable to their enemy. Uh, and more than that, it was actually a, a real big goal and a real big worry among NATO planners was actually neutralism as well. 
And uh, and we talked about this at the end of our last episode, but the Soviet peace offensive was viewed as uh, as dangerous precisely because it led people um, into thinking that maybe the Soviet Union was not going to invade and wasn't our big enemy. And so why is this Cold War thing happening in the first place? Uh, and so that's really important to keep in mind is that it wasn't just communists, but really anybody who wasn't fully um, on board with uh, the goals of NATO and specifically the U.S., yeah, and and a lot of the um, you know the the gladiators, the so called gladiators, understood. So corny. Yeah, <laughs> <I know laughs> they, so corny. but they they understood this point very explicitly, and I think you know uh, the phrase "strategy of tension" is one that um, gets bandied about a bit. But I think when you put it in this context, as you just said, brace this idea that even if you weren't a communist, you know what was the point in militarizing the society creating these sharp divisions between east and west along you know the lines of their communist word word capitalist so therefore mm-hmm. we can't you know we can't interact at all you know there was a real I, I agree there was this real sense in europe that you know what are we doing here what is the point of this cold war um uh, but you know you have uh, people like vincenzo vinciguera who was uh, convicted for his role in the Peteano bombing, which was a, a, a right-wing paramilitary bomb, some Carbonieri, the, the you know Italian gendarmes, and he said in this uh, documentary, uh, this Alan Frankovich documentary uh, about Gladio, that uh, when you were on the right, you were supposed to attack civilians to force the Italian public to turn to the state and ask mm-hmm. for greater security. Uh, people would willingly trade part of their freedom for the security of being able to walk the streets. This is the political logic behind all the bombings. People would trade their freedom for the security, uh, and and that that idea that um, we have to we have to reinvigorate this sense of warfare uh, amongst the populace to uh, convince them that these military institutions are legitimate, that they sejur- you know serve a legitimate function to protect us, uh, and that uh, and that the left, the communists, you know, rather than create a more peaceful Europe, you know, create a a Europe that's not dominated by militarism, that they're actually going to lead us to anarchy and violence and terrorism. Um, That was the impression that needed to be created. And, uh, you know, the, the, the years of lead only started, you know, into the, into the sixties, but I think it was very much anticipated that this was going to be needed because you have, um, you have allegations from, from, um, you know, pretty credible journalists in Europe uh, who have good sources inside Italy, for instance, talking about, uh, the fact that before the, the Italians signed the NATO treaty, they had to sign secret documents that basically said the government must be committed to preventing the rise of, of left-wing forces inside the country. I mean, this was well understood, you know, in the late 40s that, that this was going to be necessary. I think it's unfortunate because in the past, like, couple, it feels like the past, like, five or so years, maybe maybe longer than that, Gladio itself as a phrase has become kind of a meme that has become like in its memified state, like detached from any kind of like real political uh, and class context. But like the the like Gladio as a as a program is actually really best understood as I think like a set of like internal structures that are there to carry out a plan, like we're saying, of heightening, um, you know terror and fear among the population so that the to in order to shore up and expand uh capital state power right and but these structures that that are kind of that we can call the gladio structures i think really um you know their integration in nato i mean it starts early on like you say mm-hmm. it's like this isn't start with the years of lead like these these 
um, these bureaucratic organizations are in place at the founding of these of these international organizations. Yeah, I mean, very concretely, you have uh, you have Angleton in Italy. Yeah. yeah, I think he was working yeah. for OSSX too. He was, yeah. You know, and he he rescued Valerio Borghese, who was the commander of the Decima Mas, which was an Italian frogman death squad that went around killing partisans. And here's the here's the American uh, intelligence establishment rescuing him. He was given and, a medal for it. Yeah, and and that very you know he very much became uh, you know the Chekhov's gun because he comes back later as part of a, a NATO attempted NATO coup against. Uh, against a moderate, you know, sort of neutralist government in Italy. So uh, again, just very concretely, like they had the plans in place and they were setting up these structures and, you know, ensuring that very specific fascists who they knew would have some, some degree of legitimacy to the, to the, you know, most right-wing elements in the society would be around so that when they needed them, they could deploy them and, and they did deploy them. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would be a good place to say what a stay behind agent is. Um, I mean, this is a tactic that was not invented with Gladio. This is pretty common. I mean, frankly, it's probably been used in warfare in some form or another since the advent of like taking control of territory and warfare. Um, but but the most, uh, I guess, historically relevant roots come from World War II and specifically from the activities of both the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA, which was a uh, American intelligence agency during the Second World War, and the Special Operations Executive, uh, which was basically the British version of that. Um, and uh, the OSS was actually really kind of creative and, and, and good at what they did in terms of this. Uh, ben, you mentioned X2. Um, and that was a uh, that was there was a lot of X two agents from the OSS who were parachuted into Italy and who either made contact with the partisans or were able to locate these Nazi war criminals. And a lot of these people, I want to be clear, oh, and OSS agents were often from a different stock than you might find in the CIA. There were, in fact, actually a lot of communists and uh, Spanish Civil War veterans even working for the OSS until eventually. They were all fired before the war's end, as as the uh, as the dust sort of settled. Um, but there were also these elements like Angleton uh, and and Alan Dulles, who really kind of could more than other people see which way the wind was blowing. And so, what a stay behind agent is is somebody who stays behind when an invading force comes in, and either um, works on a partisan or resistance movement. Um, who captures, uh, or not captures, but rather rescues downed pilots. This was a, a huge component of the uh, French resistance um, during the Second World War, or relays information to a government that's at war with the occupying powers. Um, and so this was a tactic uh, that, is, that, that was actually used to pretty good effect, especially in France. Um, and so in the aftermath of the Second World War, this was, and in fact, the, the declining days, well, really, during a lot of the Second World War, there were certain elements of the OSS and SOE who were on the lookout for men who might make uh, good stay-behind agents in the event of another European war with, let's say, maybe a different power than Germany. Yeah, and the the... You know, the way that, you know, we talked about the way that in Germany, these structures got integrated into the, the German state in a very mm -hmm. formal way, um, you know, within the broader European context, um, you know, who is going to be the most fervent anti-communist? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be fascists and neo-fascists. Mm -hmm. And I think that that even amongst, you know, even amongst people in the OSS, 
uh, and then later in the CIA who, you know, were not themselves fascists, although many of them, are, you know, were, yes. but even amongst <laughs> those who- fascists. Yeah, exactly. Even amongst those who weren't, they they saw no problem using these elements because they understood this is who's going to yeah. be motivated to actually fight yeah. uh, if, if it actually came to that. And then, of course, that's get you know to get beyond the pretext of to fight against a Soviet invasion. Who's going to be willing to pull the trigger on their own, you know, fellow countrymen, you know, for for our political purposes? It's going to be these far right wing elements, and that is still the case to this day in you know, yeah. countries like Ukraine today. But um, I think that that model, um, uh, even amongst those elements that that were not per se fascist, they they understood the utility of it. So the one of the things about you know uh, we just spoke about the some of the roots going back to the OSS and SOE days, um, but the the formal structures of what uh, became Gladio uh, actually predate NATO, uh, yeah. and they they began to be formed under the Western Union in in 1948, um, and then in in 1949 was it was made a part of NATO formally under this clandestine planning committee, and. What this really represented was uh, the subordination of European security agencies, you know, spy spy agencies, to the American spy agency, to the CIA, uh, in a in a very direct way, um, and it meant that uh, in some cases all intelligence was passed to the Americans, uh, you know, to to be used by them for their own purposes. They were maybe contrary to the purposes of the Italian state. Um, and it meant that um, the Americans, via this clandestine planning committee, would dominate uh, uh, Gladio planning and and what was actually executed. Um, the the Europeans had very little input, and the people who ended up, therefore, running a lot of the Italian uh, and Belgian and, and German intelligence apparatus were were essentially handpicked by the Americans in this way. Um, and even even if there was formal independence for the broader intelligence agency, um, there was still this Gladio component within the uh, within the European intelligence agencies, which was managed by the by the U.S. and could be used to covertly, uh, you know, grab intelligence that that uh, nominally the you know let's say the Italian government wouldn't want the Americans to have just for for their own national interest reasons. Um, so incorporating all of these. Uh, you know, disparate European intelligence agencies into this apparatus was kind of the backdoor way into uh, CIA dominance over the security agencies of Europe, which I think was a pretty crucial component, oh, just yeah. generally speaking, of, of American dominance in Europe. But but for these specific purposes of, of keeping the left wing down, um, it was very important to make sure that uh, ultimate power lied in the in the arch anti-communist country, the, the, the United States. Yeah, there's like various testimony about, you know, CIA representatives always being present, kind of like this like shadowy presence at CPC meetings, like whether or not they were um, like officially put in positions, there was always kind of like other guys there. And there's, you know, there's uh, people who say there were also U.S. Forces Europe Command there, which means that's the Pentagon. Like, so there's a lot of, um, let's say, U.S. influence happening in, in these organizations. Yeah, if you think about the structure of NATO, you know the the supreme allied commander of Europe, right? The commander of all. Which, NATO. by the way, can we just say that is like the creepiest fucking name for? Yeah, our, it's very. Like, it's a very World War Two. It's totally crazy. Like, yeah, they just never. They were like, it's oh, like, esoteric sounding. I'm they, sorry. They, <laughs> supreme well, allied commander sounds I like. I feel some, like 
after like the not after the fifties, they stopped calling people like the Supreme something. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and I guess Supreme Leader, but like, yeah, Supreme Allied Command. It's like they can't change the name now. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's but that is that, psycho sounding. <laughs> yeah, especially Sack. When I say Sackier, that's what I know. all the, the it sounds like a movie. Yeah. I feel like they yeah. did. I feel like they did that for like because it sounds like a French word. They're like <laughs> did that for, you know, to give them a bone. But the you know the that I mean that every single Supreme Allied Commander in Europe has been American. Yes, right. Yeah, I yes. mean that's just baked into how NATO operates. If you needed any further proof of American domination of NATO, I mean that's it right there. And the CPC was a part of that office, so it was directly controlled by the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, who was always an American general. So the just in terms of bureaucratically organizationally, yeah. it was very much an American project. Uh, but it did have a big British component as well, but but especially that American element. Yeah, I want to just pause for a second and then just kind of like, you know, a little throwback to the previous episode. So if in the last episode we're talking about the, you know, American exportation of productive forces and like the kind of American mode of production, capitalist production in service of expanding American hegemony, like throughout Europe. And then you have the implant, like, you know, basically implantation of American security services at the highest um, offices of like European spy centers, basically. You can kind mm-hmm. of see how this is like a dual approach for dominating Europe, right? Well, I, I think this sort of like centralization, and I'm talking here in terms of like information flowing upwards to Americans, mm. uh, like I, on this level, I don't think has ever existed, right? I mean, if yeah. you were in the CIA, you had unprecedented access to intel to allied intelligence agencies that probably didn't even exist, uh, you know, between like you had relationships with them that they didn't have with each other. Um, right. And, and, uh, specifically in the context of the Cold War, uh, that is that is really really important, and it's important to maintain American dominance because you also have, um, you know, you have one of the biggest spy agencies in the world, you have one of the most famous ones, and you have a lot of uh, input, let's say, on how other ones are run. As we'll see, quite a lot of input on how other spy agencies uh, agencies are, are run. It's kind of funny when you think about that in terms of like, remember the when. Like Germany and everyone was so upset about the Snowden revelations, finding out the yeah. NSC was like tapping Merkel or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're I'd like, bro, NATO's Merkel. all up in you. What do you, yeah. you know? I'd love to tap Merkel in both ways. Yeah, um, I knew if you know what I mean. I double tap. I'd love to double tap her word. in both. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. Is this some kind of mother complex going on here? <laughs> it's a stepmother complex. <laughs> with Brace. She's a grandmother. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, a grandmother's type of mother, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. What is a grandmother but a mother twice? <laughs> I've always said that. Uh, the um, I, I think that the the that the idea that it was a spoken hub model, I think that's very important because mm-hmm. that is very commonly the American approach. That's the American approach yeah. in, in East Asia, for instance, that they don't interact with each other. They come back to the United States. And I think, um, you know, if you want to forestall, you know, some kind of, you know, the European intelligence agencies getting together in some kind of coordinated way. I mean, that's, that's kind of a necessity to keep them separated uh, from one another. And, and crucially when they are discussing with one another, there's always a CIA person in the back of the room taking notes. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like very literally that's what was happening. So I, th- I think that's crucial. And then, you know, implicit in all of this is the role that security services actually play in the, in the countries themselves. You know, it's not just about, um, 
collecting intelligence for the purposes of furthering your national interests. It's also about managing a big part of what security agencies actually do is help manage the political situation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you have, if the, if the uh, security agency is, is uh, nominally reporting to the prime minister, then that means that if you get a moderate neutralist, you know, Aldo Moro, you know, kind of type prime minister in there, he's going to change things up. He's going to put his people in. Um, but if it's if it's if they're not actually in reality subordinated to the prime minister, if there are actually these secret agreements which have been formed amongst the NATO countries that are you know explicitly about preventing that kind of political change from happening, uh, then they can much more effectively serve that role. Again, because um, you know in the United States that anti-communism was much more stable than it was in these European countries yeah. who. You know, as far as the Americans and the British were concerned, were not fit to, to manage their own uh, their own political systems. I think it's sort of hard to fathom now, but for for several decades following the Second World War, um, in America, uh, I think a lot of people, I think people can kind of see it, but maybe not see it in, in the actual context it was in. Like, uh, the, there was essentially the FBI function as political police. Um, we see it now, you know, we, we have these kind of names for like COINTELPRO and, and stuff like that, but really like their, their core function is as political police. And this, this in Europe was actually, I would say even more of intense a presence, yeah. um, from, from intelligence agencies, you know, raiding political meetings, taking down the names of everybody. Um, this was a, uh, this was a huge component to, uh, to domestic intelligence agencies. They don't, I feel like they've never really had to do that as heavily in America, um, for whatever cultural reason, um, well, but, part of that is also because of the the way that our we don't have a parliamentary system in the same way, yeah, and we true. don't have a party system in the same way, and so yeah. there really was never a threat of any kind of actual communist or socialist, even like leadership in any, you know, legislative. I think yeah. also the the class yeah. compromise, which is much yes. more stable yes. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, for Thank just you, a variety AFL, of economic. CIO. Yeah, exactly. And the, and that mo I mean that is the model that they that the US was you know in, imposing on on Europe, you know, with with not 100% complete success. Um so you know you needed you needed these much more uh, yeah. violent means of of ensuring that uh that the workers did not rock the boat. And its imposition on Europe also shores up its its power at home, right? And makes yeah. it stronger. So Yeah. So I think we got to get to the 1948 elections in Italy. And so I feel like we've set the scene enough for you guys where Italy, war-torn country, uh, large communist party that is very popular, um, heavy Western presence, um, especially you know in terms of money and troops and stuff like that. Um, and there are elections. And this these elections were extremely important. They were crucial. Um, and... For a variety of reasons, uh, number one of which is that the communists, and in fact, the communists were in a, I believe, a coalition with the Socialist Party. Italian Socialist Party is also a very big party. It's not, um, it, it, it's it's a, a lot. All, a, most social democratic parties were pretty big in Western Europe at the time, but the Italians and the communists were in a coalition. Um, the, I think the Popular Democratic Front, which is just the three, like that's like the most basic name you can have your left-wing coalition be. It's just every you, – you, you'll say it and then won't remember it a second later. Um, and they were actually projected to win. Um, there, were, uh, there were opinion polls going out and they were showing that the communists were slated to do, if not win, but to do very, 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 very well. Um, 
And uh, so like in most Western European countries, uh, I guess probably in most European countries at this point, there's also a Christian Democratic Party, uh, which is generally like the center-right to right-wing party uh, in, in, in the largest center-right to right-wing party. I feel like countries either have a big Christian Democratic Party or they have a big like right-wing people's party. Yeah. Like those are the, those are the two kinds of right-wing, like generic right-wing parties that you have. Yeah, if you can imagine like immediately post-war in Europe, right? I mean, the war basically destroyed the old political arrangement. Like yeah. basically all of the right-wing parties have been pretty thoroughly discredited by their association yeah. with fascism. And so what's left, like the socialists and the communists, all the liberal parties were basically irrelevant at this point mm. for a variety of reasons. Basically, they didn't have any real contact with the uh, working class and the old classes that these liberal parties used to represent didn't really exist as yeah. much anymore after the war. So yeah, what's left? It's like the church, essentially. Yeah, and so that's yeah. why you're left with these these Christian Democrats become the default uh, right yeah. wing American support, and they gave tons of money to all of them. In in you know in Germany, you had the Christian Democratic Union, the Christian mm-hmm. Social Union. You know, Merkel. You had, yeah, ex- exactly. In the in uh, and in Italy, you had the yeah the DCI, the, the Christian Democrats of Italy. Yeah, and uh, I got to tell you, the CIA they knew a good bet when they saw one. So the U.S. government saw that this Communist Party is gaining a ton of power in what is pretty crucially a pretty crucial Western European state that America needs to have control over, and they could not let this happen by any means. And they see the Christian Democrats as their best and really only bet in order for that not to happen. Yeah, and they they gave a ton. They gave I think as much as twenty million dollars. The CIA yeah. gave directly to the DCI. You had money coming from Western multinationals, like oil. Some of the oil majors were giving oh lots of God. money. Wait, yeah, Ben, dude, I was, I got in a hole the other night reading about Exxon, Exxon and Mobil before yeah. they merged. Them giving money to Italian parties, um, but it's it's insane because they actually gave money at one point to the Communist Party too. I think later yeah. in like the the maybe the eighties. Uh, but in the seventies, they were giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Socialist Party of Proletarian Unity, like just like a small, like you know, I don't know, probably in the tens of thousands of membership Communist Party in Italy, getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from Exxon is insane to me. But they were financing. I mean, in addition to all the money from the CIA, Exxon was literally giving tens of millions of dollars to the Christian Democrats. So they were breaded the fuck up. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking them for that. Yeah, it was a it was a huge push, and it was very you know this is such a crucial operation because it was one of these it was one of the first you know big American post war covert operations. Yeah, it was actually the the um, document that outlined the policy was actually NSC one. It was the very first NSC you know National Security Committee document uh, after that body had been created, and you know they said that the the Italian government, which is ideologically inclined towards Western democracy, you know it's, it's the birthplace of Western civilization mm-hmm. in many respects, right? Uh, it's weak and it's being subjected to continuous attack by a strong communist party. Um, so that was their impression of the situation that that you know we need to repel this advance. And you know they gave they the the NSC directed the CIA to give money. Uh, Voice of America broadcast all kinds of propaganda. Um, they were printing you know defamatory, just making shit up about you know people having affairs and even more outrageous, slanderous things than that. Oh, that's just Italians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. But they also were. I mean, we should say they were also arming paramilitaries in the event that their you know all the money that they were funding to the DCI failed. 
Yeah, absolutely. Kasuga, who who was uh, the interior minister under the DCI <laughs> later date, he was he he mm-hmm. said openly, I was be, I was being I know they gave me a sten submachine gun and grenades, and if the communists won, we were gonna we were gonna fight a war. I mean, that yeah. was that they were very much prepared for that eventuality, and there would have been political violence if that if the communists had won. I mean, I, I think it is pretty extraordinary that if the Communist Party in Italy and the Socialist Party, it should be noted, which is in later years became very accommodating to NATO, yeah. um, if these parties had won a democratic election, a free and fair election in Italy in the 1940s, um, there would have been almost certainly an invasion by the United States of America, and yeah. those people would have been killed or driven into exile. Um, you know, it's it's pretty extraordinary to think about right now. Like it, it, the the entire course of Italian history, essentially since World War II, has been dictated by a series, and especially this one, uh, decisions made by the United States government. Which is um, why NATO gets the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta say, if you're an Italian, you got you kind of gotta feel like a pussy for not having done it. <laughs> I think all Italians feel that secretly. Yeah, I don't know what they feel. I like them though. Me too. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine what Europe would have looked like if that yeah. had happened. I mean, because it would have made overt uh, very many things that were already happening covertly. Yeah. But so it's hard to imagine if if the U.S. had gone in and done that. You know what what the effect would have been on Europe. So the the fact that it didn't happen, I think, is is a is a shame and uh, you know really set the stage for this. I mean, you know, the socialists, for instance, the communist. You know, we could talk about Euro communism, but the socialists were yeah. opposed to NATO in the first place, yeah, and yeah. remained opposed to Italy's membership in NATO through the '60s, um, and later became, you know, another, you know, essentially social liberal, social democratic party. Yeah. Well, so did um, the Communist Party for that. For yeah, that exactly. But at that time, it was a very different story, and there was a very mm-hmm. different um, set of factors. And and the fact that it went the way that it did, I think, set the stage for a lot of the tragedy that that was to follow in Western Europe. Yeah, ultimately the Christian Democrats actually won the election, as as you can imagine. So I had some of the heavy foreshadowing we've done here, uh, and the Popular Front I think came in, or they did come in second. Um, I think with four million less votes, and it was actually a shock to people in Italy at the time. Um, I think people had really expected, um, and I'm sure there was some chicanery with the voting yeah. process. I mean, if you know, even if the CIA wasn't involved, it's it. I've been I've been. I've been to Greece, and that's close enough. I know how things work down there. I listen. I want to be clear. I love any country where you live with your mom for basically your whole life, and I'm not joking. <laughs> that's my favorite countries are ones where you just kind of never move out, um, and everyone sort of just gets more rotund, but wears less and less clothing as the time as the days go on. Um, but uh, but the the Christian Democrats take power, which basically forever sets the course uh, of Italy after that. Yeah, and the the obviously the year of 1948 is mm-hmm. crucial because uh, the following year Italy joined NATO. Yeah, what a coincidence! Know, it, yeah, and had and had and also had uh, because you know as you said this idea of political police that that's really what security agencies are, and because the experience of Europe at that point had been the Gestapo. Yeah, so people right. understood what these organizations are about. They had for, you know many of them had firsthand experience with it. Um, and so it was only when the Christian Democrats had, you know, secured that victory that the Italian government could create a, a, a security agency, an intelligence agency, you know, internal security. Um, and uh, that happens just before NATO accedes to the to the uh, Italy accedes to the NATO treaty. Uh, so I think that that uh, that that context is crucial because um, 
you know, Italy's NATO status remains a controversial issue, uh, basically until, you know, the end of the 1960s. Um, and so the fact that this election was won and then they entered NATO, it's, it's very hard to get yourself back out of that at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also fair to say that the the formation of the Italian security agency was a prerequisite to joining NATO, yeah, <laughs> right? Because absolutely. there was no use for there was no use for uh, them in this organization, in this you know alliance, if there was no sharing of of intelligence and no gathering of intelligence and no carrying out of these kind of gladio what we'll we'll come to learn gladio missions um because that's the entire that's the entire point right yeah yeah and, and i mean we were alluding to the idea that um you know the all of these intelligence agencies become subordinated to the cia and that happens very explicitly with with uh sifar mm-hmm. which is the the first first of many they they repeatedly get themselves into controversy so they have to you know shut it down and start a new one yeah. you know every every other decade basically it's a great move yeah it's you know it's a winning you know change your brand name right that's just that's the way out right sifar's sifar has got to be one of my favorite names too because it sounds i mean i like it you got to have the intelligence agency sound evil right Sif- it sounds I crazy think, evil I think it sounds next- like a disney villain yeah obviously gestapo is the most evil sounding one sure. um but Savak too, mm, I think. Absolutely, uh, yeah. The 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 Shah's uh, s- secret police, my my favorite app by far, Savak, because it's just yeah. you, you get you know. You really I, I gotta tell it. you, I don't have any context. I'm like you're like oh you gotta get you're gonna get arrested by the CIA. I'm like what what is that? Before I didn't pay taxes. Someone's like you're getting arrested by Savak. I'm like oh, I'll just kill me now. <laughs> Yeah, so far, so far sounds a little bit like Cipher too. Like there's yeah, some, some yeah, real, yeah. it's a very rich name. Yeah, too bad they had to get rid of it because they they bombed some people and killed a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, people tend to frown on that. Yeah, the the I but uh, you know some of these some of these quotes from some of these uh, documents. You know, there's there's an NSC document that Truman signed that said, uh, in case the communists successfully enter the government by legal means. The United States have to be prepared to take countermeasures. Mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, you have the Operation Demagnetize uh, documents that those came out and those were written in 1952. Uh, you know, the limitations of the strength of the communists in Italy and France is a top priority objective. This objective has to be reached by the employment of all means, right? All means. Mm-hmm. The Italian and French government may know nothing of the plan, for it is clear that the plan can interfere with their respective national sovereignty. I mean, they understood exactly what they were doing, and they and and uh, they understood what the threat was posed, and they stated it in very plain terms in these internal documents uh, that that this was their plan. They were gonna they were gonna uh, fight the fight the left by all means, which which in, would include political terrorism. I think it's important too to know the time period here, which is the early fifties. It's right after NATO started, and NATO actually would. Had some rocky ground for about its first decade. It was on rocky ground for about its first decade. A lot of these countries had traditionally not worked well together. Uh, some of them had even been recently at war with one another. Uh, and so there were quite a few kinks to work out. And 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 what you can see here is like obviously there are political and military considerations uh in in taken into account with with making sure the communists don't achieve power. But a huge part of that too was was they need to strengthen NATO, is they need to make this alliance a real actual alliance. And not just a collection of um, you know country names that sign at the bottom of a treaty. Um, keeping the left out and keeping the Christian Democrats in is a hugely important component of that. And the U.S. was 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 going to take essentially um, any any effort they could to do it. They would they would do. So 
So, so when you flash forward to the to the Kennedy administration, which starts in January 1961, um, you know you can see uh, if you if you read Vanderpile's book about uh, the formation of the Atlantic ruling class, the Kennedy administration was sort of the third big push of liberal yeah. internationalism. Again, uh, you know, we're there still had been living a lot. in that, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh that that was a there, there was we're that in was a some final of the entrails of it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The the exhaustion of it as a project is yeah. is now with us today for sure. But um, but it was still the the many of the things that the liberal internationalists had wanted to achieve, such as decolonization, had not yet been completed. And you know that's really what you know the reason why Kennedy, it, to the degree that he has any progressive uh, cred at all, is basically because of the, the you know his push for decolonization as against yeah. the British and the French. And um, you know that uh, another thing that he favored was um, a much less violent. Well, I shouldn't say much less, a slightly less violent approach. Certainly, let's continue American domination of Europe, but let's try to do it more subtly. Let's try yes. to do it with less violence. So, for instance, you know, he seemed to believe that um, there could be a reconciliation, not with the communists, for sure, but with the socialists, that we could begin to bring the socialists um, and, and incorporate them into uh, the European political scene. Uh, this happened in Germany. This happened all. I mean, this happened everywhere. And this basically is the beginning of the trans. You know, the change of the socialists from a yeah. real revolutionary socialist party. You know, oriented towards at the very least, you know, nationalization, socialization, to just you know, social democracies essentially, which is where we yeah. are now. And I mean, you, you see this all throughout Europe, and the the socialist parties and the, the big social democratic slash socialist parties. Sometimes they're called the social democratic party, like in the case of Germany. Sometimes I think in France it's the socialist party. Uh, although I liked when they were called like the French section of the first international or whatever, <laughs> um, which they were for for much of their history. Um, you know, there was a there was the 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 sort of mid century was a big time of turmoil from these parties because there was sort of no longer a revolutionary socialist element uh, among the working class, but there was a pretty big, uh, oftentimes middle class. Um, Sort of accommodationist social democratic element, and you see kind of how that is what's that turned into today, which is these parties are, I mean, lockstep with NATO, and yeah. and you know, and, and they are they are, I mean, they make AOC look like uh, you know Che Guevara or something. Um, but uh, but yeah, in Italy there was a, there was a pretty big struggle over that because Italians love they all they love to I mean. Fuck! I mean, they had Garibaldi, man, one of the coolest revolutionaries in history. I mean, there, there is, there is a, there is a lot of revolutionary sentiment among Italian people, um, or there was, and uh, and that that had to work itself out with the Italian Socialist Party. Yeah, and I think, I think, um, you know, if you think about it, one of the key components of of kind of the liberal internationalist approach is a, a labor capital compromise, yes. right? You don't want to do full fascism where it's just full on military repression of the working class. So let's work out, an, you know, an accommodation with them. Um, and, uh, you know, that was I think that was a big part of incorporating the socialist parties into that kind of arrangement in Europe yeah. um, was was taking place and arguably was taking place over the course of the 50s as well. Uh, but I think Kennedy, in the case of Italy, you know, he he didn't see a problem with the socialists coming to power mm. potentially, even though even at this point in the early '60s, the socialists in Italy were opposed to NATO. They were opposed to Italy's membership in NATO. I don't think, uh, I, you know, perhaps Kennedy thought, well, that's not really that big a threat. That's not ever going to happen. And, yeah. You know, it, once Italy's in, they're not going to leave. Um, but there were there was a lot of opposition within the American establishment to that. You know, they wanted you know ironclad. DCI control permanently. Yes. And this became a huge issue. I think, um, you know, a lot of 
wheeling and dealing inside the American intelligence apparatus, which led to serious problems in Italy. So, you know, the the basically the DCI has one of their worst uh, electoral performances ever in 1963. So they get they get 38 percent. Um, and the, the communists and the socialists who are now no longer in a coalition together as you know part of this popular front that they had been in the late 40s, um, they, though, together, they get more than the, than the Christian Democrats did. I think they got 39% or 40%, something like yeah. that. So Aldo Moro, who is this more moderate, you know, compared to Andriotti, for instance, or Kosiga, uh, who are very right-wing elements within the DCI, Aldo Moro is much more moderate. He's a more neutralist um, you know, person who wants to, you know, have some more accommodation with the with these left wing elements. Again, part of that move towards social democratic compromise that takes that takes hold in Europe. And he basically says, "Look, uh, you know, if you're not going to let me bring the communists into government, obviously, you know, but I do have to bring some of these socialists into my government as cabinet Literally, ministers. You can't. Yeah, you 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 don't have a majority government. Right. I don't have a majority. I need I need them. There are some smaller parties that won, you know, some of that remaining twenty percent, but that's not enough to push me over the edge. So I need to bring the socialists into government." And so this kicks off, I think, probably longstanding planning for a coup, essentially, which mm-hmm. yeah. uh, is uh, called the Piano Solo Coup. Um, you know, the kind of on the ground guy was this guy, Giovanni Di Lorenzo. Uh, he had been the head of SIFAR. And he was essentially ordered by the CIA to uh, to take action against this, uh, against Aldo Moro forming this coalition government. Uh, so he was made, Kosica made him, uh, the or no, I think Andriotti at the time was a defense minister. He made uh, De Lorenzo the head of the Carbonieri, which is like the gendarmes uh, in in Italy. Uh, we don't really have that in the U.S., I guess, no, but it's essentially like a it's kind of like a pair. I mean, our police are basically that at this yeah. point, but yeah, it was essentially like tanks and stuff. It's like yeah, a federal exactly. paramilitary police, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. like full on like they have APCs, they have yeah. tanks. They don't have quite have tanks, but like that kind of it's like they're like mechanized. DHS for us, I will but say you don't like see yeah, it deployed yeah. domestically as much as at the border. Right? I would yeah. agree. Yeah, they're basically our version of gendarmes. Um, but also like the shittiest small town has like a yeah, fucking totally. MRAP now. Yeah, so. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it's very much the, the Americans have adopted that in their own in their own way. But he, you know, so th- they were able to do this very subtle coup where this guy, De Lorenzo, is put in charge of the Carbonieri, and he also has these Gladio elements that are commanded by the military intelligence at this point, the SID, and uh, they set up shop in Rome. And they're essentially on standby to occupy important facilities, you know, the TV station, the radio station, all the classic, you know, coup targets. And then De Lorenzo meets with Moro and says, look, you know, we're going to need to do this the easy way or the hard way, right? Either you take these socialist ministers out of your out of your cabinet uh, or there's going to be a coup and the choice is yours, essentially. And, and Moro uh, was was cowed by that, as I think, you know, pretty understandably, frankly. And he they they allowed him to bring in a few of their more acceptable socialist ministers. You know, they gave them the, the kind of crappy, you know, they gave them like, you know, health and human services. You know what I mean? Those yeah, kinds yeah, of things yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that the uh, the establishment is not really very concerned with. And uh, that was that. And Moro's attempt to form a truly uh, representative of the electorals, you know, situation uh, was was stopped by this military, this you know, this covert military force. Um, and that becomes, you know, that happens much later in Italy as well. But uh, that that kind of um, intervention at the behest of the CIA to subvert Italian democracy, even against these relatively speaking moderate left wing elements. Who were well on their way to becoming, you know, just a another cog in the in the European political architecture, 
that was that was not acceptable to the point that they had to uh, enact this this longstanding plan to to uh, push that back. I think with Italy, uh, you know, we 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 mentioned the years of lead earlier, and we, we did talk about this on a previous episode too. I, I'll try to figure out which nine eleven. I won't do this, but I think it's if, the fifth. It's the one about false flags. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, the gladio structure in Italy developed into something that, um, I, I would say was more advanced even than most other countries. It, it became a huge colossus. This sort of like underground behemoth. That combined elements of the church, uh, the military, fascist organizations, um, the mafia, and intelligence agencies from all over Europe um, into basically a criminal political force, a paramilitary criminal political force that was designed to cause terror, to kill civilians, uh, and to prevent by any means necessary a left-wing or even neutralist government. Um, you know, you mentioned Aldo Moro. Aldo Moro was, of course, later killed, and his body, uh, you know, left midway between the Communist Party and the Christian Democratic yeah. headquarters. Um, that was blamed on the Red Brigades, uh, and there is a lot of. I mean, we'll see some allusions to some some similar questions about the Red Brigades when we talk about Belgium. Um, but uh, you know, these were that was that that's basically understood now to have been. If not a gladio operation, then certainly uh, any any chance of him being rescued went out the window uh, yeah. the minute that the U.S. government and the Italian government got together and started talking, uh, you know, negotiating for his release. They were not interested in that whatsoever. Um, yeah. You know, there was a there was there was huge train station bombings where where hundreds of people died. Um, there were there were constant like you know, it was gunfire. Any kind of like left wing political office. Tons, scores of people were assassinated, murdered. Um, bombs were planted and then blamed on the left. The police would break into left wing politicians' houses and plant bomb parts to try to um, to try to implicate them in crimes. And this happened for years and years and years and years. A huge part of the a huge component about this is the so called stay behind organizations that NATO set up within Italy uh, with neo fascist or basically or fascist Italians. Uh, in order to resist a Soviet invasion. And they decided to be proactive and not just resist a Soviet invasion, but actually to resist like even moderate social democracy. And so this was essentially what you got with NATO's plan for Italy. You had years of torture, murders, rapes, arson, uh, all in the name of fighting against communism, but really uh, in a sort of larger sense, in the name of causing political uh, terror so that people will... Um, well, they'll be more, uh, they'll be less neutralist when it comes to the government, um, and it's it's sort of extraordinary. They, a lot of this came out in 1990. There was a parliamentary commission. I was reading the uh, the documents. Uh, someone had foiled um, the uh, Italian embassy, American uh, embassy in Rome, rather's um, cables back to America during all of this. And it's really funny to see, like, the ambassador clearly doesn't know. What some of this stuff is, mm. and so he's like, mm. they're, they're talking about something called the CPC uh, in Italian Parliament. Like, do we have a response to that? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, but I yeah. mean, most of the, the the architecture of these of this, like, I mean, it's like NATO architecture. So it's it's yes. you know, it, it's it's hard to call it anything else. It's just like it's concrete NATO architecture has was basically unknown to the member countries. Yes. Yeah. 
up until some of the little bit of revelations that we got from the parliamentary hearings in some of the European countries starting in 1990. Um, there, but even then, like France has denied that it had any kind of stay behind network, which is just a lie. It's not true. Yeah. Um, and Andriotti himself said that the ACC, the Allied Clandestine Committee, which is kind of the later iteration of the CPC, was like their they were he says that their most recent meeting, which the French branch he says was present for, was October twenty-third and twenty-fourth in nineteen ninety. And he said that in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's only like a month and like 10 days left in 1990 in that case. <laughs> I mean, to this day, the US and the, and the you know, the CIA, yeah. the MI6, I mean, they just straight up deny that NATO says that the CPC never existed. Yeah. They have yeah. no record of it. I mean, if you ask them, none of this stuff happened. None of these organizations existed. Despite, as you say, I mean, Andriotti, who was, who would, who would know, expl- I mean, he was practically, I mean, it, he, some of the tenor of some of the things he said, he mm-hmm. was practically bragging about his role yeah, in this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, of course, by 1990, they had won, right? So, yeah. you know, there's a lot to brag about, but the, I think, um, Brace, what you were talking about, the, just the scope of who was involved in this and the, the level at which it operated, you know, it seems rather petty, on the one hand, to have, you know, these um, fascist paramilitaries enabled by the state to, you know, set off a car bomb and kill a few Carbonieri. But then on the opposite end of that, you have this coup, which involved, you know, the mm-hmm. the gendarme apparatus of the Italian state to have a coup against the elected prime minister, you know, like the, the and all of it was uh, certainly compartmentalized, but I think a part of a much broader, obviously a much broader strategy that, um, that was able to, to, you know, find all of these different disparate elements and bring them together, the, both on the legitimate end of the state, the secret elements of the state, and then these covert underground, you know, fascist paramilitaries. Uh, that's, a, that's a hell of an unholy alliance, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, is actually how I first was introduced to Gladio when I downloaded the Unholy Alliance audiobook as the first <laughs> audiobook I ever got, uh, <laughs> I think, in, in 2010. Um, you know, less people think that, oh, well, Gladio, that's just some shit that Italians are always getting up to trouble. I mean, they invented the mafia and the Pope, for Christ's sake. Uh, wrong. I mean, this occurred, we're not going to get into this in, in for every country, but this occurred in basically every single European country, yeah. uh, east of the, uh, of the wall, you might say, or west of the wall, rather. Uh, even non-NATO countries like Austria, for example, a bunch of arms uh, arms caches were found in Austria in the 1990s. Uh, the government there claims they had no idea, but uh, doubt it. Um, but, Which, by the way, sorry, just to interrupt, that is that is crazy because Austria yeah. was neutral. Yeah, yeah. Austria was supposed yes. to be neutral. So right. Switzerland, yeah. by the way. And so, Switzerland had these same structures as yes. well. Switzerland, I will say Switzerland, Switzerland has never not been neutral. neutral. Yeah. No, but they're not, they're, you know, ostensibly, right? Yes. They're, they're right. you know, they claim neutrality. And I would say that every, like, just walking around normal person would be like, oh, yeah, the Swiss, they're neutral. That's like the thing that you know about yeah. them. And, and people, people in those countries were they favored neutrality. I mean, yes. they wanted to be neutral because it meant not being involved in this. You know, they still lived under the umbrella of it, uh, but to, it meant not being involved in this militaristic. Uh, and for you know, in Austria's case, I mean, I think it was a pretty direct response to the fascist, um, you know, yeah. history of that country during the war. So to to then involve them in this clandestine. Uh, 
you know, covert paramilitaries. It never was, it was not activated in Austria to the degree that it was in other countries like Italy and Belgium. But the fact that that was done was a, a huge violation of the country's sovereignty and, and the will of the people to be a, a neutral, you know, country. I think Belgium is an important one to raise here because I don't know. I have no idea what the common perception of the Belgian is. Uh, I can tell you my own feelings towards that country, um, which is, I mean, you're Dutch. You're Dutch, or you're, or you're, or you're French, or you're German. I don't know why you're Belgian. Um, it's confusing to me. I don't want to know. I don't know what Walloon is. That's weird to say that for me as an American. I'm just saying that. Um, and I am very sorry that my country did do a bunch of uh, what looks like armed terror in yours. But I think for our sort of second case study here uh, shows how I would assume. I mean, Italy is its own beast, right? I don't think, I mean, obviously all of these countries had different Gladio programs, but Italy has such a um, entrenched deep state that I think it took on even a more advanced form than it did other places. I think Belgium probably gives us more of an example of what it likely looked like uh, or what it did look like in a lot of Western European countries. I mean, it's somewhat similar to Germany's as well, uh, because there was a pretty pretty large stay behind network there as well. Yeah, and and uh, you know the Belgian political situation, like a lot of European countries, you know you had communists and socialists in the government. You know you had serious concern about uh, the possibility of them uh, becoming a majority, and so the same kinds of impetus that existed to create this organization in Italy and the rest of Europe existed in Belgium as well. And you know, I mean, one of the things that happened was the uh, the communist the leader of the communist party in Belgium was was assassinated in 1950. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, the um, uh, Paul Henri Spock, who was the, the head of uh, he was the second NATO secretary general, um, you know, he he has pretty. Ex- I mean, he's definitely alluded to the fact. And if you read between the lines, it seems pretty clear from some of the things that he said that that assassination was a part of a was a mm-hmm. part of a MI6 operation that that certain elements within the uh, within Belgium were, were a part of. Yeah, basically the Belgians, I mean, there was like, they had, the communists had like 21 seats in parliament after the war. They were pretty popular. And the UK and the US were, uh, I think they were pretty nervous about that. And there wasn't really anyone left besides the old monarchists to bring in. Well, this is the problem. When you collaborate heavily with the Nazis during World (laughs) War II, uh, as basically, I mean, especially against the communists, I I was reading a, I actually think it might've been another Rand paper, uh, but no, I don't think it was. It was some kind of think tank paper from the 70s I was was reading last night. And they talked about how like really in the aftermath of World War II, there was not a lot of options besides the communists in terms of people who hadn't collaborated. And uh, the people who had collaborated had basically waged a war against communists uh, during the entirety of World War II in collaboration with the Germans. And so that's the political situation we're left with. Yeah. Julian Lahout, the, the, the communist leader, he basically was shot right after they, ins- they reinstalled the king who was mm. like, you know, I don't know who, if he was the, the second son or third son. He was Leopold. Uh, Leopold I feel like, I feel like his dad couldn't come back because he had been too nice to the Nazis. Yeah. So they were like, oh, well, my son. I, but I can't remember. Was it his son or his grandson? I can't remember. I don't but know. But so they basically grandson. like reinstall him. 
And uh, Lahout was like, you know, at, at that reinstallation, he like shouts out, long live the Republic. You know, he's mm-hmm. trying to fight as a Republican and was just like shot and killed two days or so later. Um, you mentioned Paul Henry Spock. He was he was the prime minister at the time, though later, like you said, he becomes the uh, secretary general, I think. Um, and he basically has come out and said that, yeah, like you said, it, it's strongly suggested that this was a joint operation between the U.S., the U.K., and the Belgian security services, a.k.a. NATO, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the the you know, Belgium was integrated into this architecture pretty early. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there was already this, uh, free trade zone in the Benelux countries. So I think it was one of the more advanced, you know, countries early on in terms of, uh, you know, some of these plans being implemented and that, I mean, that assassination did create a huge political vacuum in Belgium, because as you said, who was, who was left at, at that point? Uh, it, it, but it did open the door to, uh, a lot of these right wing operators, um, you know, I think uh, if you think about like the trifecta of, of European, you know, defense ministers who, who tried to, to take control of their, of their country, some of them were, you know, uh, Paul van der Boenens in, in Belgium would be a big one. And, and uh, you know, he was also like an arch pedophile and, and uh, a variety of other unsavory things. So uh, exactly the kind of person that NATO would want in charge of a country like Belgium, therefore. So uh, it's it created these uh, the the the. You know, the destruction of the old liberal parties and uh, the destruction of the Communist Party, essentially, by that assassination and various other means, uh, left left you with uh, essentially a, a Christian Democratic Party, which was a tool of the United States. Yeah, I, I believe in 1952, um, in 1950, two, uh, there was pretty heavy political repression against the Communist Party there. And they were basically like excised from public life in a bunch of different ways. But this was not good enough for our good friends at NATO. Um, and with this in mind, and with a potential quote, potential Soviet invasion in mind, they set up a pair of stay-behind groups, uh, one civilian and one military. Yeah, the SDRA-8, which talk about like spy name, like, <laughs> like that is cla- that feels a really like a good classic. One. This yeah, one's even better, STC slash mob. Yeah, which is I like, like that one. Yeah, too. it's like pretty intense sounding. You can tell that that has some um, that has some uh, CIA involvement because they love putting slash and something. Yeah, yeah right. totally. So the SDRA eight were basically like military men. So these were guys like trained in combat, sabotage, paratroopers, maritime guys. You know the classico style. Mm-hmm. And then the SDC mob were the civilian branch, which that makes it sound like oh that's nice. But these are, you know, these were guys that were predominantly recruited from groups with, this is a direct quote, strong religious convictions as a guarantee for their anti-communism. <laughs> now, we mentioned the monarchists, um, but if you think of maybe kind of, let's say, like recent examples of fundamentalist or extreme right wing organizations, groups like ISIS, you can think of what kind of groups there would be in Western Europe at the time that would be that would have such strong beliefs that could be a guarantee for their anti-communism. Right. These well, are these are like civilian outreach to like fascists, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, Belgium had a pretty big fascist party uh, in the years leading up to the Second World War, the Rexists, yeah. Yeah. Um, who always, I'll be real, the Rexists always seemed a little pathetic to me. Well, Belgium. Like, they couldn't really get their shit in order. I think the guy who made Tintin was a Rexist, yes. um, which is funny to me. That little guy is always getting into some trouble. I think the dog is cute. I think the dog should die. <laughs> So, I mean, we've spent a good amount of time talking about the kind of different political tensions, but I do think it's good for us to kind of get into the nitty gritty of how these networks actually functioned, like on the level. So, I mean, they are kind of like classic spy style. I mean, I don't know how to say it. Like if you read spy yeah. novels, if you read, if you see movies, like it is, it does all feel or it will sound very familiar. So the Belgian like stay behind agents like very likely knew a very little of like what they were actually accomplishing on a kind mm-hmm. of like larger political scale. They were kind of, you know, they're th- th- like all kind of networks. They're set up with agents and instructors. So you have like one advising the other and they had a kind of cell structure so that, you know, as instructors would go abroad, they would build their own networks and there would be kind of like a pyramid scheme of recruiting like fascist spies basically. Right. Yeah, it's all compartmentalized because if one guy gets arrested for something, you know, maybe he's uh, shooting uh, some mine workers or something and he gets arrested, you don't want him to be able to name everyone on the network. Yeah. And so for the like STC mob side on the civilian side, they would basically, they would most likely, they wouldn't know each other's names at all, even. They wouldn't know their instructor's names. They would have like no indication. It's like Fet Life. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they would, I mean, these guys operated completely independently of the Belgian army. And so in order to do so, they had to have like as little of information as possible about each other. There were, you mentioned in the Austrian example, but there would be secret arms caches like spread throughout the country, guns, munitions, gold, explosives. And there were extensive radio networks that were set up and base, I mean, this continues to this day, but there were, um, there were installed, har- like there were harpoon networks at the time that were established through the country. Um, and, and it's the Belgian justice minister has testified that these were brought in, implemented and like actually bought by NATO itself. Mm-hmm. These are yeah. NATO uh, radio networks that were installed uh, to manage communication between all of these kind of fascist paramilitaries. Yeah, I think the communication point is crucial because yeah. you you need to have a way for these elements to communicate with one another that is not uh, a part of the traditional communication you know routes within the military. You don't want to produce documentation on your secret covert paramilitary terrorist organization, uh, so you've got to have a secret way of of you know getting information between them. And yeah, it was like top end NATO equipment, you know, cryptographically secure, et cetera. So, you know, there's not going to be, nobody's going to hear this and you can basically say whatever you want, you know, in an age when, you know, that kind of communication was, was not easy to come by. Right. You know, if you're not doing that, you're having to do, you know, dead drops and pay phones and that kind of thing. So it made that kind of coordination, uh, for these kinds of, of, uh, terrorist, uh, attacks uh, a lot easier and and directly, you know, like you said, directly financed by NATO. Yeah. Michael Van Ussel, great Belgian name, mm-hmm. who was a member of the STC mob, he gave testimony. He said, one day a man came to my house and asked me if I would accept a confidential mission. I hate he when said, that happens. <laughs> 
He said that it was something within the framework of NATO. So just as an aside, this is explicit, by the way, that is told to people. Our base was near London with a second base near Boston, interesting, in the United States. Um, and so these SDR-8 forces were like trained by trained in the U.S., participated in actual NATO exercises um, at the direction of U.S. special forces within not just their own countries, but like other countries within the U.S. sphere of influence. Um, and these NATO exercises, by the way, they would have nothing to do with a potential Soviet invasion whatsoever. No. And a lot of times ended up being terror attacks, as we'll see. They were under the guise of being like NATO exercises that would be terror attacks on local civilian town, like just towns and shit. It's crazy. Well, I, I think the training in other countries is an important part because you see that over and over again with a lot of Gladio stuff um, is that people are flown to America or flown to Britain and trained in, um, you know, basically what, what essentially amounts to special forces training, yeah. uh, oftentimes given to civilians with, uh, let's say, extremist politics. Um, and then returned home and told, well, just, you know, sit tight. Don't use any of those skills, brother. Like, you know, just hang out until the Soviet Union invades. <laughs> um, and I got to say, some sympathy for these guys because you're like, you know, you're reading the newspaper, you're like, all right, Soviets still invaded, Soviets still invaded. I got to shoot somebody. And uh, boy, in the case of Belgium, shoot somebody they did do indeed. What a sentence structure I got there. Well, there's a couple of the, yeah, there's the big Brabant massacres that we should talk about because that's mm -hmm. like one of the most traumatic experiences, I think, in Belgian history and is quite recent. <laughs> the other one that I want to mention is the Vilsom incident, which is basically like one of those exercises gone awry. <laughs> so in 1984, U.S. Marines set out from an airport just like north of London over Belgium, they parachuted into an area where they basically met up with SDR-8 agents. SDRA 8 I'm just going to butcher that. I'm sorry. Um, also, it's funny how it looks like straight. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> anyway. So both the U.S. Marines and the SDRA 8 agents, they set up camp in like a secret isolated location. And they start getting ready for their operation, which was to attack a police station in this very, very quiet rural town uh, called Vilsalm. The U.S. Marines open fire on this police uh, station. They kill a Belgian warrant officer. And this town, mm -hmm. this small town is like, what the fuck? This is fucking crazy. Yeah, Red Dawn. Yeah, yeah, well. Exactly. It was Red Dawn because they found a bunch of the weapons that were stolen from that police station. And they, funny enough, ended up in a flat belonging to one of the, uh, you know, communist cell combatants. I can't say that name in French or Belgian, whatever the hell it is. The CCC, the, the alleged- Communist combat cells, yeah. yeah the, uh, basically, like, they planted a bunch of the stolen weapons in the communist cells to frame them for this terror attack on- uh, on the police station. And so you see this like twofold attack, this like, you know, this kind of like twofold goal is accomplished, which we then see kind of repeated throughout these Gladio exercises, which is one, you put the Belgian local police, which is not aware of the kind of false flag insider nature of the attack, right? Mm -hmm. It puts them on the ready, and they genuinely believe they need to shore up support and expand their presence because they were just attacked by, you know, 
They were just Someone shot just at came and in attacked. and iced you. Yeah. Yeah. And two, it makes it seem like this very like comfortable and like quiet, wealthy like area in Belgium is on the brink of communist revolution. Yeah. Well, there's some weird the CCC, like a lot of these groups, is there's a lot of um I'm thinking specifically of the Red Brigades. There's sort of a lot of debate over whether they're actually like either like a cutout or a front group, which I guess is the same thing in this instance, for um intelligence agencies or for the right wing as well. Um eventually the the leader I think did get busted uh and and went to prison euro style for like 5 years. Um which doesn't I mean to be clear that part doesn't mean anything because it's impossible to go to prison in Europe for more than like a month. Uh, <laughs> but uh but yeah they 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 there was a um I mean it's 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 an extraordinary coincidence in a series of extraordinary coincidences. So the big one in the kind of Belgian history with these stay behind armies is the Brabant massacre, which was, or massacres, it was really a set of basically 16 armed assaults, massive terror attacks that happened right around Brussels between 1983 and 1985, which by the way, I just want to point out like, so we had been talking about the kind of political situation in Italy in 1948, and we are now in the mid to yeah, you know early to mid 80s in Belgium like there's a continuation here this program like we're only point we're only bringing two instances here to that we're talking about in this episode but like this was going on for decades throughout western europe right yeah but we are now like 40 years later in the future and this this time period this this period of like 19 i think i think really 1983 was when a lot of the anti cruise missile protests really kicked yes. off um, because these cruise missiles had been developed that that could be placed in Europe and could hit targets in the Soviet Union pretty quickly. Um, they could have nuclear weapons on them. You know, these are like the when Tomahawk missiles started to really become a key part of the American arsenal. And that really like started to change the security situation. You know, it, it started to change the mutually assured destruction equation. And a lot of the left um, and even just liberals and things were, were very opposed to this. And there were big protests about uh, denuclearizing Europe. Getting these crew, you know, ensuring that these cruise missiles wouldn't be put in in the Netherlands, and in, I think some of them were in, were going to be put in in Belgium. So I think um, that context of you know this sort of repoliticization in Europe around these these security issues uh, and sort of NATO pushing um, pushing more military hardware on a European populace who didn't want to be, you know, if there's cruise missiles in the Netherlands, then theoretically you're a target if you're in the Netherlands, if you're yeah. a civilian yeah, there, right? Absolutely. So, um, so you know, NATO was trying to push this on them. So I think that that uh, context of that being precisely the time frame that the Brabant massacres take place, I think is pretty crucial. Yeah. Like I said, these were like an insanely traumatic experience for mm -hmm. the country. It was just like absolute terror. There were attacks. These attacks were on grocery stores, in taxis, restaurants. There was like a textile factory and a jewelry shop. Like they were all just like small local businesses. And in each of the cases, the attacks, there was basically like a really small amount of money that was taken. Yeah. Or just like beer. Yeah. It would be like something like totally like insignificant, but maximum, maximum brutality and extremely, extremely professional killings took place. I mean, like point blank shootings of entire families, like which was clearly purposeful. It was a it was really um it's hard to to um pull apart the clear 
like spectacle that was it was clearly meant to to be a huge spectacle in order to strike maximum amount of fear. Liz, right? have you seen Heat? Yes. You know the when he's like blasting in Heat, yeah. and he, he shoots that girl. It reminds me of that. I'm like these guys are living Heat every day, except instead of well, they shot cops too. But you're right. Like these guys, I mean, the Brabant massacres are some of the most insane instances of this stuff because these guys basically performed this like insane hyper violence and then would just steal like some bottles of wine yeah. and stuff like that. Like they bust into a grocery store, you know, cut out the fucking phones and then just like shoot half the people in there and then leave with essentially nothing. They love robbing grocery stores, which is like, I'm sorry, I'm not, you know, not a robber, so maybe I can't speak to lived experience of this, but it seems like not like that much money there, you know? Well, a, a, a couple of the instances too, like uh, the money that was stolen was found in like unopened right. bags, like in the, in a uh, dumped in a canal or in a trap. Like there, there was no. Uh, just throwing it away afterwards. Yeah. Cause they, that first of all, that's not how they get paid. Yeah. And yeah. second of all, they didn't give a shit. Like. It's hard to overstate how how horrifying these attacks were. <laughs> I mean, the one of the biggest ones was on St. Martin's Day in in Belgium, which is like, by the way, that's like a huge Xmas holiday, Xmas mm-hmm. Christmas holiday. Oh, that's cute. I know. Um, but basically, it's like you know, there's the night before, like children go to bed, and there's supposed to be like presents in the morning, and so. That that day is like a, a kind of crazy last minute shopping day for families. This is like there's a reason why they picked that day, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, a Volkswagen GTI, it was parked outside the supermarket. Three men with hoods, all holding guns, jump out of the car. The tallest of the three produces like a pump action shotgun and just opens fire and point blank kills two shoppers instantly. So this guy's called the giant too. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. really something. He then approaches the checkout counter and starts firing randomly at like anything and everything that moves. I think eight people were killed and seven were injured, but there was a husband, a wife and a 14 year old daughter that were all killed together. There was another father and daughter that were killed as they were trying to run out of the supermarket. Um, and yeah, like we said, they took a couple thousand pounds, but they later found it unopened, totally abandoned in, in a ditch. And of course, afterward, the Belgian justice minister, Jean Gaulle, goes on TV and he's like, we need to beef up Belgian national security. There were now police outside every single supermarket. There were paratroopers, like all in the cities. And, you know, at each of these, they, like I mentioned, there were like 16 total attacks that went on for about a year and a half. Each one of those, they targeted the elderly, women, children, mm-hmm. entire families. The The object of each of these attacks was how do we maximize like all possible terror among the population? I mean, it's like, it's so fucking horrible. It's so fucking horrifying. And this was, I mean, this was all part of the Gladio structure, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these guys were connected to, you know, Belgium at this point in time. They were, you know, the the SDRA-8 uh, in particular was developing this uh, covert, um, you know, they were they were basically shooting clubs and associated publications that were associated with those shooting clubs. 
and you know, uh, not to stereotype, but the type of people who are often attracted to shooting clubs are, are often right wing in this context. And uh, it became a way to organize these people um, into a into a paramilitary. Um, and you know, for instance, uh, this one this one group in particular, this Westland New Post group. Yeah. You know, they found huge troves of NATO documents. Yeah. Uh, that were confidential. You know, how did this person get a hold of these things? This is not a, you know, this person's not a military officer. How is that? How is this possible? Um, and you know, the one of the people even testified and said, you know, if I stole any of these, I was I was doing so under the direct order of the SDRA eight. You know, that's that's who told me to do this. So it it starts to become clear that that um, these organizations were uh, definitely a part of this Gladio structure and and had a you know had a particular um, you know, flavor to them that arose, you know, arising out of the, the, you know, milieu of Belgian fascists at that point, but uh, very, very similar to the kinds of organizations that, that existed in Italy at the, at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned the WMP, and we should say that Paul Latinus, who's the commander of the WMP, pretty, I mean, I would say infamous Belgian fascist. Yeah. He, I mean, according to statements that he himself has made, was paid by the Pentagon, specifically DIA, and trained by NATO forces. Um, and he started working with like fascist paramilitaries during the 70s. And, you know, uh, if you know anything about the FP, he was a part of the FP, then set up the WMP at the same time, kind of was, he was also working within the Belgian government as a like advisor to the labor minister. Um there was a left-wing journal in the 80s that like tried to expose him as this kind of like secret fascist leader and at that point he fled to Chile to like you know safety under Pinochet but returned just 2 months later <laughs> fleeing to Chile yeah totally um but returned to Belgium just like Belgium like 2 months later right before the Brabant massacres kind of began yeah which i think is pretty pretty indicative of the role that these groups played. In yeah. That. And it was pretty, I mean, if you go, uh, we, you know, we've talked about like the, if you go back and look at a lot of the contemporary reporting, um, you know, I can only look at it through like Google translate and stuff, but I mean, they were pretty, expl- I mean, particularly when the Gladio stuff started to come out in 1990, when Andriotti revealed a lot of that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Belgian journalists were looking back and saying, huh, yeah. you know, that lines yeah. up. <laughs> and I think that the, some of the connections that they had started to make between, you know, because at that point it was not understood, you know, when these were happening, that there was this Gladio architecture, but when you, um, cause you can, okay, sure. Yeah you know, crazy fascist right-wingers, sure, they'll, they'll form a shooting club, but how can they operate for so long without being caught? Um, you know, that was a huge unanswered question. And so, but then when you find out, oh, there's this bureaucratic structure within which these groups are ensconced in the, uh, you know, security apparatus in the Belgian state, you know, that's how they got away with it. They, they had protection. And, and many of them, many of the members of the Westland New Post explicitly said that, you know, we were protected by mm-hmm. uh, various elements of the Belgian state so that, so that we could do what we, you know, when we were going off and doing our missions, we were, we, we had cover, um, you know, that's what they said. So I think, um, yeah. And so much of that is just, I, you know, has been lost and, and nobody's really gone back and followed up on it. There's very, still to this day, there's very limited information in English, especially about Gladio. There was a Belgian uh, parliamentary investigation into the massacres, like just before some of the secret army uh, revelations were coming out. 
And this is a quote from that. According to the report, the killers were members of former members of the security forces, extreme right right wingers who enjoyed high level protection and were preparing a right wing coup. And some the Guardian did some reporting at the time as well. This is from 1990. Right-wing organizations across Western Europe were being mobilized into the battle as part of an anti-communist strategy originating not with organizations deviant from the institutions of power, but from the state itself and specifically within the ambit of the state's relations to the Atlantic Alliance, which is pretty explicit in what they're saying. Mm-hmm. What's weird, again, just to like reiterate this and drive this home, is that 1983 there is no the soviets are not invading no right the so the fucking soviet union is not it doing sucks. well um and there is no danger of any kind of like mass con- i mean there isn't even like big like like strong communist parties in western europe in yeah. the 80s right like the 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 closest thing that you could say is that again like what you said with with um nato countries nato member comp- countries their you know dem- the populations democratically being like wait a second we don't want cruise missiles yeah that's literally the closest thing you could say yeah. that would would be threatening any kind of um you know atlantic alliance in in, in europe that's it and what was deemed appropriate for that was one of the largest sprees of right-wing terror on civilian populations in fucking Western European history. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out too, like, you know, sort of the the strategy of tension, one of the, one of the purposes of it, or I would say the main purpose of it, is to make people pick a side and flock to the state. Yeah. To have to choose between lawlessness and anarchy and a strong state, and and in the case of you know places where this was um, the strategy was employed in Italy and Belgium, um, the state means you know to be to be a supporter of NATO and to be a supporter of uh, of, of the free market in the West over the uh, the at this point admittedly pretty alien East. Um, it, you know the, the, these these you sort of almost feel sorry for these bums in a way because. You know, they're these neo-fascists, like, or just fascists, you know, psychopaths and killers. And really what they're being used is like in the employ of, uh, of liberal internationalism um, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and the free market. You know, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, the, the WNP, I'm not super familiar with what their actual beliefs were, but I am pretty familiar with some sort of adjacent and connected groups that come out of Belgium. Um like uh, young young Europe or Jean yeah. Europe or whatever Jean Jean Three R, who is by the way one of the most fascinating figures uh, in history to me, just a total fucking freak. Um, you know these people were like real deal Nazis, and they're like basically killing people for blue jeans uh, yeah. and Coca Cola. Yeah, it's yeah, pathetic. I mean, the the degree to which the European working class at this point had been pretty thoroughly pacified. You know, all of the teeth had been taken out of the socialist yeah. parties. Even the communist parties that still existed had embraced Eurocommunism at this point. It was just a, you know, it, it was basically a world historic defeat for the yeah. for the European uh, working class by this point. And like you said, you know, the liberal internationalist order had had, you know, was very close to its ultimate victory at that point in the mid nineteen eighties. And yet, just under the surface of this, you know, social democratic compromise was this 
uh, insane violence that the state was was more than willing to unleash on its own population in service of uh, this this political and economic order. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you know, like you said, it's a little pathetic that these Nazis. Uh, couldn't even, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't even fight for their own uh, political vision. Ultimately, yeah. they they were just in service of, uh, as you said, uh, uh, you know, importing American blue jeans. Yeah, I mean, for Christ's sake, at least you know the Taliban won eventually in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. these guys can't even say that. Um, you know, there's a uh, yeah. Liz and I were talking about this group a, a couple of weeks ago, but there's a. I mean, if you want to see what these fucking freaks got up to after after the Cold War ended, uh, the Order of the Solar Temple is a is a WNP connected group that was basically a, a freak cult that ended up killing themselves in in Switzerland and murdering each other uh, in a sort of uh, very white Jim Jones style um, group of of uh, assassination suicides. Uh, Liz, what happened to Paul Latinus? Oh, uh, he killed himself. <laughs> Funny enough, yeah. He killed himself in, like, I think early 1984. So. I got to say, a lot of suicides Mm. in all this stuff. Yeah. People kill themselves. If you're in a Gladio group, you have depression. (laughs) (laughs) In more ways than one, yeah. They need to go to therapy. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope ladies and gentlemen, we've, we've laid out here basically the case that NATO, their first, uh, let's say full group operation was not, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, but was in fact the infiltration, uh, and I don't actually infiltration is not the word. I don't know. The annihilation of thousands of human beings in Europe for the purposes of spreading, um, anti-neutralism and uh, the free market and anti-Soviet ideas. Uh, yeah, just to comment on the idea that NATO is a defensive alliance, uh, you, you know, you see this idea bandied about. I think uh, over the past two episodes, I, yeah, I think that we've made the case that it was oriented towards a very particular American form of, of political economy and enforcing mm-hmm. that on the European population in, the, in this post-war context. Uh, and that meant using these far right-wing fascist elements many of whom had been explicitly fascist during the war or who followed on that ideology, uh, using them for the purposes of uh, subverting the, the democracies in Europe and, and preventing uh, any kind of uh, workers' movement from, from posing a threat to the imposition of this new capitalist order on the continent. And even, you know, to say it even more explicitly, that the, you know, this kind of American hegemony in Western Europe required ultraviolence from fascist paramilitaries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Which, and that came in the form of an organization called NATO. And, and, I, and I think just to sort of bring this into the, the present day too, um, you know, regardless of, of how you feel about the conflict in Ukraine, uh, if, if you think that these sort of organizations aren't being set up over there too, probably with uh, people who have extreme political beliefs and who are being supplied with heavy weaponry, uh, because if the Russians do eventually take it over, um, there will be, I, I think, a great deal of of, uh, of violence from these groups, uh, from stay behind organizations, um, and uh, and I think we'll see that. You know, I, a lot of people said that sort of what that's what ISIS K was going to be uh, in Afghanistan. 
I feel like they fell off pretty quick. No one's really like, no one's really talking about yeah. ISIS K. I, I, I'm not gonna look at the Google trends right now, but I got, I got, I'm have, a, I'm willing to bet that ISIS K spiked for two days after the withdrawal and then dropped off precipitously. Um, but you know, this is a, uh, this is a military tactic, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's employed basically everywhere, um, and it'll continue to be employed today. They should call it Operation Sadio because it's so depressing. Oh, <laughs> think about that. That was sweet. Um, I, I, I was, I wanted to interrupt you so bad when you're talking about SDRA eight, mm. uh, the gay SDRA alliance. Does that work? That don't work. Young Chomsky likes it. You're, yeah. You don't seem to like it. He would. We're keeping it in. We have more NATO mm. episodes coming up. Um. We have to now talk about what happens after, unfortunately, the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And when NATO takes an explicit offensive stance, even though, like, we've tried to lay out in these two episodes, and I think quite successfully, it has never not taken an offensive stance. You think, and you know, I, something just occurred to me. I think the Partnership for Peace still exists. Mm. I wonder what those guys are, like, doing right now. No idea. I was like, I guess this didn't work out. Like, <laughs> I guess we're not doing this thing with Russia. I don't know because it's. I, I think it like if it, it may it may not still exist. I got to look it up. But if it does, I'm like, you got to really feel like a chump being at the Partnership for Peace office right now. Um, yeah. Uh, let's, uh, Liz. Let's let's get in the Chinook uh, helicopter, the double rotored. Uh, oh, look at that! It's a man in a it's a dashing aviator. In a leather helmet. Oh my God! It's Young Chomsky who produced this episode. We, why am I doing it like this? I don't my, know. But uh, keep going. I'm on the side of the helicopter now, and I'm going. Uh, I love you, Europe. My name is Brace. We're going back to England, which isn't part of you anymore. Who am I with? Liz. And Young Chomsky over the sound of the the rotors here. Uh, our podcast is called True and On. And I love we you. will. Oh my God. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.